Uh, this week, something came in the mail that maybe you also received in the mail. It was evidence of not God's kingdom, but of retail Christmas. And it was a catalog from Target. And it was a catalog unlike any catalog I've ever seen from Target before. New marketing ad campaign. They did a great job. It did not even have prices in it. It was just pictures of the toys with a QR code next to them that you could scan and it would immediately go in the shopping cart. I thought the marketing was genius until my daughter started looking through it. And all of a sudden, the child who had completed her Christmas wish list many weeks ago had a whole new Christmas wish list that was not like, it was excessive. All of a sudden, this kid who was really fine with what she had asked for realized there were a lot more things that she needed and a lot more things that she wanted and her life was no longer satisfactory and her life began to fall apart within about three pages, <laughs> right? Guys, this is envy, right? This is envy. Now, to some degree, we all struggle with envy, but few of us would ever say like, oh, the top tier thing that I struggle with is envy. Like we might say like, I'm impatient. <laughs> I have an anger problem, right? Or even if we're really brave, we'd be like, hey, I, I struggle with lust or I struggle with greed, but very few do, times do we say, my top tier issue, envy. It's just something that we don't really think is that big of a problem. And part of the reason for that is because as a culture, we've kind of normalized it. We've turned it into a really good marketing strategy. We've kind of said like, hey, how do we get the economy to flow? We get people to want things. And if we can get people to want things, then we can become a richer nation. And that's better for everybody. And so we've sort of created this like habit, this, this, this vice into a marketing strategy and sort of said, hey, no, it's, it's not so bad. Now, it doesn't just happen with kids around Christmas. It happens with adults too. It's all these sort of ways that we sort of look at the other person and say, oh, they have those clothes. I don't have those clothes. They look like that. I don't look like that. They have an apartment that looks like that. My place doesn't look like that. And we think that at first, envy is this really benign thing. In fact, sometimes if you are a parent or you work with younger population, actually, if you're a boss and you're trying to motivate people at all, there's always a level of envy that we kind of throw in there. And we're like, hey, well, if you will do this, you could receive all of this. You could become all of this, right? We use it as this motivational strategy, and we think that it's like not a big deal. We think that it's fine. But the reality is, is envy is actually really, really dangerous. Now, the ancients knew how dangerous envy was because they actually tacked it in to, as one of the seven deadly sins. It is deadly. And it's so dangerous because what envy actually does is it chips away at our identity until we're totally enslaved to the lies about who we are and also about who God is. Now, as we've journeyed through the book of 1 Samuel in our series called Kings and Prophets, 
prophets, we've pointed out um, these, this theme of humility and dependence on God that are sort of woven throughout the book. And if you don't, if you pay enough attention, you can start to see that like, wow, this, this author keeps talking about humility and dependence and trust in God like a lot. Like this keeps coming up and coming up and coming up. So we're sort of looking at this book through the lens of humility and dependence. And we've sort of said, hey, let's give ourselves some definitions of what these things mean. We've said that true humility is agreeing with God about who you are, right? It's about agreeing with God about who you are. And we'll dive into that a little bit more of how we get that wrong. But then we've also said that true dependence is agreeing with God about who God is, right? So we've sort of looked at that through this whole thing. And what we did was we kind of set up last week like an X and Y axis. Those of you who are in geometry or Algebra, we're like, oh no, right? We've set up an X and Y axis to say, hey, this is sort of how we fall off the tightrope that is humility and is dependence. Um, in humility, there's sort of this tightrope we're walking between insecurity and arrogance, right? One side of it, we fall off and we are now insecure thinking less of ourselves than we actually are. And on the other side, we become really arrogant and we think of ourselves as more than God says that we are, right? Then there's this other spectrum of the dependence thing where sometimes we become overly self-sufficient and we say, I got this, I don't need God. In fact, we set up our whole lives in a way that we're like, I, I am fine. <laughs> I don't need him, I like him, I love him, I want some more of him, but I don't need him, right? So we sort of live in this realm of self-dependence or we live in this realm of codependence where we're like, I like want to follow God, but if I'm going to do what he's calling me to do, then like he better make it easy for me. He better make it easy. Like he better take care of everything. And I just like have to like lollygag through it. Right. And so what uh, the book of first Samuel is leading us to is like, Hey, true dependence is finding agreeing with God about who he says that he is and saying, God, if you are holy, if you are provider, if you are protector, protector, then I will step out to do the things that you've called me to do, not in self-sufficiency and not in codependence, but knowing and trusting that you are who you say you are. And if I'm going to walk in true humility, I'm not going to think more of myself than I am, and I'm not going to think of myself as less than I am. I'm going to agree with God about who he says that I am. So this is sort of where we've been over the past couple weeks. We've slowly been building. If this feels like a fire hose, I want you to know that like we've been like chipping away at this slowly and adding one more piece. So I'm just trying to like give you a whole big picture of what this is. When we walk in humility and dependence, we are able to participate in the kingdom of God here on earth. And 1 Samuel gives us these examples of what it looks like to walk in humility and dependence. They show us pictures of Hannah, right? We're given the story of Hannah. We're given the story of Samuel. We're even given the story of David. But we're also given examples of what it looks like when we struggle to walk in humility and dependence. And for that, we're given this picture of Saul. Now, what we see in the next chapters that we're going to be diving into is we see that Saul's lack of humility and dependence eventually gives way to envy, and it causes him to become a slave to the lies about his very identity. 
All right, so that's where we're going to be going today. Now, although Saul had been chosen by God, where we left off, we saw that God sort of rejected Saul as king because of his disobedience. God had told him like, hey, this is what it looks like to trust me. This is what it looks like to be fully who I have made you to be. And Saul's like, nah, I got a better way. I'm going to do something completely different. And he acts in total arrogance in his disobedience. And so while Saul is on the out and God's like, okay, we're just going to like wait for you to die. Come on, hurry up, die. We got a new king. There's a new king. David enters the stage as God's new anointed next in line to the throne. And we're seeing David step up and do these incredible kingdom things as a result of the anointing that is on him and his ability to walk in humility and dependence on God. Now, the part of the story that immediately came before what we're talking about today is the David and Goliath story, which we talked about last week. It's due to David's dependence on God, he is able to defeat the um, Goliath, the uh, Philistine champion, and basically, like, David then rushes the field with the army of Israel, and they take out the Philistines and they chase them back and David's like heroic and he has success and there's all these accolades coming in and he's having all this popularity with the people and everything is going great for David. But for Saul, all of this popularity and success is like stoking the flames of Saul's insecurity and his arrogance. And it soon gives way to this envy. Now, And when I said, like, it's stoking the flames of his insecurity and arrogance, you're like, those are two opposite sides. Yes, I know that they're, like, they're two opposite sides of the spectrum, but they're actually, like, the same side, different sides of the same coin, right? They're both rooted in this inability to agree with God about who we are. And so, uh, and so uh, it, it didn't start this way where Saul was enslaved and envious of David. At first, Saul actually sees how talented David is, how successful he is, how anointed he is, and he gives him this high rank in the army, and he's like, yeah, go defeat my enemies, go do the thing. And David has a ton of success, and Saul is probably really happy about that in the beginning. But the problem begins when David comes home from the battle, and the people start noticing things. They start saying things that don't make Saul happy. And so we're going to read in chapter 18, starting in verse 6. If you want to pull out your Bible, pull out your app, you're welcome to do that. Again, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 18, starting in verse 6. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women, the women came out from all over the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tenth of tens of thousands. Saul was very angry, and this refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands? What more can he get but the entire kingdom? Like, he's going to take over everything. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Now, here's the deal. If anybody ever says, like, hey, you, you, like, if you were a war hero or whatever. And it was like, hey, you've slain a thousand enemies. Like that would be like, wow, that's 
that's a lot of people. Like, that's pretty crazy, right? So, like, that's nothing to shake a stick at. Like, that's pretty amazing that they're like, Saul has done this great thing. But Saul gets angry because he hears the comparison. It's me. I've, you're saying I've only done 1,000, but he has 10,000? And this is always how envy starts. It starts with this comparison. It's like, wait, I've got this, but they have that? right? We compare our experiences with their experiences. We compare what we have to what they have. We compare to what we got to what they got. And oftentimes it isn't even a fair comparison. It's like everything I know about my life, all the good and the bad, I'm comparing to what I see in somebody else's one Instagram picture. And I'm like, that's not fair, right? Now, when we're truly humble and we agree with God about who we are, we can hear the statement, and we can be like, yes, I got a thousand. That's awesome. Way to go, me. God loves me, and I am enough. And then we can hear the statement, and David has 10,000, and we can say, that's amazing. God loves him, and together we're seeing God's kingdom come. This is incredible. We make each other look good. <laughs> but when we are already off kilter, when we are not walking in that true humility, when we're uh, walking in our insecurities or in our arrogance, the comparison that arises almost immediately leads to destruction. And guys, this is the crazy thing about envy. Like the allure of it, like even the beginning parts of it don't even taste good. Like they don't even feel good, right? Like not even for a second. Like you think about all the other sins like gluttony, Gluttony tastes real good at the beginning, <laughs> right? Like, then your stomach hurts. But at the beginning, gluttony's awesome, right? Lust, there's a pretty good pleasure that comes from that at the beginning. But then it leads to loneliness and brokenness and broken relationship. Greed, I'm getting everything I want. Okay, but envy is this weird one. There's like no pleasure, even at the beginning. Like it's not a pleasure that slowly wanes. Instead, it immediately kills the joy in your life. Like immediately. Like think about it. Something good comes to someone else. And envy has you see that, and it makes it impossible for you to enjoy it with them. Instead of being able to celebrate what they have, you see it and immediately you're like, oh, I want that. And you want it so badly that it consumes you. And then if something good comes to you, envy doesn't let you enjoy it because it's never enough. It's never good enough. It's never, it's never uh, uh, enough enough. Someone always is going to have more or better than what you have. And so it just spoils it. The very thing you wanted gets spoiled because of envy. Now, Paul tells us, uh, he gives us instruction for like, hey, if you're living in the kingdom, this is what you're going to do. He talks about this in Romans 12, and he says this thing. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But envy causes us to reverse that, right? Envy causes us to weep when somebody else is rejoicing, and it causes us to rejoice when somebody else is weeping, it's this, it isn't even this con conscious or rational thing. Like, oh, they got something. Okay, I'm sad about that. I will now weep about it. It's this automatic thing that is ingrained in us, and it's so difficult to shake that it takes our insecurities and our arrogances and our weaknesses, and it enslaves us. 
to them. And this is exactly what happens in Saul. Keep reading with me in verse 10. The narrator, the narrator says, The next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did, and Saul had a spear in his hand. And he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. <laughs> but David eluded him twice. So he didn't just have one spear, he had two. He threw it and then he did it again, right? And when the author is saying, like, hey, he's like, I'm going to pin David to the wall. He's not thinking, like, I'm going to catch him by his clothes while he's dancing around. That is not what is being said. He is saying, I am going to impale him to the wall. I am going to kill him. Now, over the next several chapters, Saul actually tries to kill David six times. At first, it's just like, I'm just going to happen to throw this spear, and if it hits you, that's your fault, right? At first, it's kind of like that. Like, that's kind of Saul's thing of like, I'm just going to throw this. And like, did you ever do that with your siblings where you're like, I'm just going to swing my hands, and if it hits you, it's not my fault. You got in the way. Did anybody do that to a sibling? Just me? Okay. Actually, that was done to me. I was the youngest, so I didn't do that to anybody. I just, sorry. My oldest brother would just hold his hand on my head, and I couldn't reach him. <laughs> Anyways, at first, Saul is doing that. Like, it's just like, I'm just going to throw this, and if it hits you, oops, I don't know what happened. It just came out as accident, right? And then, like, Saul goes from doing that to, like, uh, actively hunting him down. Like, everyone, get on your horses. We are riding because we have a hint of where David is. And David's on the run. And this is always where envy takes us. It starts as like, hey, if something accidentally happened to you, like if I was walking down the street and you accidentally got hit, that's, I don't know what happened, right? And it becomes, I am actively going to hunt you down. It makes us a slave to whatever it is that we envy. And for Saul, it was the kingdom. It was keeping control and possession of the kingdom. That's what he wanted more than anything. That was what he was envious of. He wanted to stay the king. That had become everything to him. And David was the threat to that. And so envy enslaves him in his insecurities. And it stokes the flame of, I want it, and I want it now, and I have to have it. And this would be everything. I would be complete if I had it. I would be whole if I had it. My life would have meaning and purpose if I had it. And all of my insecurities would go away. So I want it. And envy begins to reveal in us the thing that we most put our hope in. If the thing that we're envious of or for, that's the thing that we believe is the actually the most important thing in our life. It's actually um, gained importance even above God. We believe that that is the thing over God that will actually give us the promises that we most seek. That if we got that thing, then all of our insecurities would go away. Then we would be whole. And in our insecurities, we want it so bad that envy begins to enslave us. But then flip the coin. It also feeds our arrogance by stoking the flames of, I deserve it. I've worked harder than everybody else. I am smarter than everybody else. I have sacrificed 
more than everybody else. I'm a better person than everybody else. I deserve this more than all of them. And when others get what we think we deserve, we resent them. Why can't I have it? I should have it. Why is it that they get it and I don't get it? We can't rest until we get what we want and we get what we deserve. And we become a slave to this pursuit until we lose the very thing that we're trying to get in the first place. Now for Saul, he's trying so hard to keep his grips on the kingdom and keep his seat on the throne that actually what happens as he's chasing David down is he becomes a terrible king. <laughs> like he's the worst. He's supposed to be defending the borders of his city, taking care of his people, and like all of that. Like none of that is anywhere in the story. Israel's getting like invaded by all of these other neighboring things, and David in secret is like riding off to defend the borders, and, and Saul's just like, where's David? Oh, you're attacking? That's fine. Where's David, right? He becomes this terrible king. He's no longer even taking care of his people. He's no longer doing the thing that he's fighting so hard to keep. All the kingly th things of, uh, of, of de defending the kingdom against his enemies, protecting the people, making sure that it's a just place to live, all the things that make him a king fall away in pursuit of killing David just so he can stay on the throne. Envy enslaves him until he completely and utterly lost the very thing that he was trying so hard to hold on to in the beginning. And this happens to us all the time. We think that we're like trying to become a better person. We think that we're trying to hold on to relationship. We think that we're just trying to get the approval of some people, but really we wind up killing the very thing that we're trying to hold on to. And so there has to be a way to freedom and liberty from this enslavement. And Jonathan, Saul's son, is actually the one in this story that shows us the way to freedom, shows us the way out of the slavery of envy. And so we're going to go back to the beginning of chapter 18 in verse 1 and read there. This is what we're told, that after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became in one spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. And from that day, Saul kept David with him, and he did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing, and he gave it to David along with his tunic, and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, here's what's happening in this story. The narrator's trying to tell us about these two people who are actually seeing the same thing in David, right? Saul and Jonathan both see this amazing anointing that has happened on David, that he is the next one to become king. They both see it. But they respond in very, very, very different ways. Saul is, comes up with all this envy, and he becomes enslaved to that envy. But Jonathan, Jonathan has a different response. Both of them have a lot to lose in David being selected as the next king. But actually, Jonathan has more to lose than even Saul because he's the heir to the throne. Saul's already on the throne. So he essentially is safe, but Jonathan... He's not. Like, he actually has the greatest threats on his life. Now, I won't ask how many of you have watched Game of Thrones or House of Dragon, but I have. 
And one of the things that's fascinating about this show is that what you learn, like it's all about like who's gonna be the next king? Who's gonna be the next one to sit on the throne? And what you learn quickly, particularly in this prequel that came out of the House of Dragons, is that if you have a claim to the throne, but you don't ascend to the throne, it will likely cost you your life. So it's not just about like, well, who's going to get on the throne and who's going to hold the most power? It's like, who's going to come out of this thing alive and who's going to be dead? And if you choose the wrong side, it's not just, oh, I'm not going to be king. It's like, no, you're dead. You're dead. It will cost you your life because you're a threat to everyone else's claim on the throne. And that's what it is for Jonathan in the middle of this thing. Jonathan should actually be incredibly afraid of David, like more afraid of David than Saul is. Because if David ascends the throne instead of him, Jonathan's entire life and his whole family is threatened. Culturally, it would have been totally appropriate to kill Jonathan and his entire family just to make sure that like, there's no rivals right? But despite both Saul and Jonathan being threatened by David's rise to power, Saul opposes David, but Jonathan, Jonathan does something completely countercultural. He gives David his robe. Now, in those days, if you were to like abdicate your crownly rights, you or abdicate the throne, you would take off your royal robe and you'd leave it on the throne. And it's sort of saying like, hey, I don't want to do this job. Somebody else take it, right? And what Jonathan does is he just doesn't leave it on the throne saying, hey, anybody can have it. He gives it directly to David. He says, listen, this is going to be your role in the coming kingdom. I see you are the one that is going to lead us to salvation and deliverance. And so I'm just going to hand this right over to you. And then Jonathan gives David his sword. Jonathan, the one whose life is threatened by David coming to power, gives David his sword. He makes himself completely vulnerable and killable. Like, and my question is, like, doesn't David know, like, you're supposed to stick the sword of your rival in their belly, not in their hand? But David's like, no, no, no. Jonathan's like, no, 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 David, take my sword. And essentially what Jonathan is saying is he's saying, command me. You're, you're my commander. Tell me what to do. I, I am at your service. And he's making himself so vulnerable because at any moment, David could take that sword and kill him. So why would Jonathan do this? Because Jonathan knew that God's salvation, that God's kingdom was coming through the reign and the rule of David. And the only way that he could participate in it was to get off his throne. And so he does. And that's what our solution is to this envy problem, to the comparison problem, the thing that sucks all of the joy out of everything. Now, we're told in the passage that Jonathan loved David. And there's this famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13 that actually is read at a lot of weddings and describes what love is. And one of the things it says is that love does not envy. And because Jonathan loves David, he's able to see any good thing that comes for David, it's for Jonathan too. See, when you love someone, you are no bit less happy when they strike it rich as when you strike it rich. Love means that 
They're flourishing and they're thriving and they're living out God's plans can be celebrated. And we can't love someone if we're envious of them. Now, everyone wants to be loved like that. But no one can do it in and of ourselves. So how do we do that? How, how do we take this posture in our own life? Well, here's what Jonathan did. Jonathan, when he was doing this, he actually took on the same attitude that Jesus does. He took off his robe and he made himself radically vulnerable so that the, one, the ones that he loved could sit on the throne. Jonathan is also pointing towards Jesus because Jesus, like Jonathan, also had crown rights. He was the, kingly, uh, the king of heaven and all of earth. And what Jesus does is he gives up his heavenly throne in order to make himself vulnerable and killable so that the ones that he loves, us, can sit on the throne with him. In Philippians 2, it says that Jesus had equal rights with his heavenly father, but he emptied himself. In fact, he made himself killable. He gave the entire human race his sword. Not only did he become killable, he was killed. Because Jesus abdicated his throne for a season so that we could flourish, so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be made whole. Jesus stripped himself of the glory that he deserved so that we could have the glory that we don't deserve. See, here's the exact opposite thing. Like, Jesus does the exact opposite thing of envy. Jesus loves when people get what they don't deserve. Like, that's the gospel right there. Like, all of us are cheering for, give them what they deserve, right? And Jesus is like, I love when people don't get what they deserve. Jesus gave up his entire life to make sure people got what they didn't deserve. He was willing to suffer so people got what they didn't deserve. And we are running around trying to make sure everybody gets what they deserve and we get what we deserve. And envy is hating the fact that we're getting something that they don't deserve. And the gospel is that we are getting something we don't deserve because Jesus got something he didn't deserve. And when that really seeps in, like when we really like allow that to like flood our hearts and our minds and, and correct our thinking and, and put our, our whole lives in order, it begins to change us. It changes everything. And when we let what Jesus has done for us begin to seep in, that's when we begin to be set free from envy. We begun, begin to be free from, to respond to Jesus in the same way that Jonathan did to David, to see that the kingdom is coming in Jesus. And that the only way for us to participate in that kingdom is for us to actually get off of our thrones, to give Jesus our sword, and to say, command me. This is not my kingdom anymore. This is your kingdom. My neighborhood, my workplace, my family, all of these little kingdoms I've set up, these, I don't want to be king anymore. I want to give it to you, and I will serve you. I'm done being on the throne. I don't want to be king. I give up. It's for you. When Saul saw the salvation of the kingdom fall to another, he tried to hold on to that kingdom so tightly that it drove him mad. But when Jonathan saw it, he said, here, 
and he found joy, and he found freedom. And that's the invitation that we have today. Now, I'm going to invite you to sort of respond to this message in a unique way. Um, we're going to take communion together, but as a part of that communion, there are these little strips of paper on the um, white tables that are there. Now, I don't know whether you, like, were just thinking of the words that I was saying, or maybe there was a situation in your very life that was coming to mind that was being stirred inside of you, and maybe that was the Holy Spirit that was stirring that inside of you. But what I'm going to invite you to do is to take one of those strips of paper, and I'm going to invite you to actually write on that strip of paper... something in your life that you realize you want more than anything. Something maybe that has driven you to envy. That you look around and you see like this is the thing that will really make me complete. Maybe it's the thing that you're like, I would do anything to have this. I am doing anything to have this. It's the thing that when you look at other people, you're like, why is it that they get that and I don't get that? And perhaps you've never named that as envy before. That feels very foreign to you, but you very much resonate with the, why do they have that and I don't have that? But I'm going to invite you to write that down on that piece of paper. Because what that really is, is that is actually the thing right now that you are trying, that's the kingdom that you're trying to hold on to. That's the thing that you're trying to say, I'm going to get this, and even if it drives me crazy, I'm going to have it. And the invitation that you have today is to get up off of the throne of that kingdom and say, Jesus, take it. I see that you are bringing some sort of salvation in some way. I want to participate in your kingdom. And if I'm sitting on the throne of this kingdom, I, I can't participate. And so I'm going to invite you to just write that on that piece of paper, whatever that is. You're going to fold it up. And then I'm going to invite you to um, participate in communion. You're going to tear a piece off of the bread, and you can dip it in the cup. And communion is a symbol of what Christ did to redeem the whole world. It's a symbol of him being king, but abdicating his throne stepping down, making himself killable, suffering for us so that we get what we don't deserve. And so my invitation for you is to, is to sort of say, hey, here's, here's the thing that I have been trying, here's the kingdom I've been trying to hold on to and the throne I've been trying to keep my grasp on, and I'm going to invite you to just put it on the plate below and surrender it to Christ. And then take communion as a way of saying, God, I want you to be my king. I welcome your kingdom in my life. Let's pray together. Father God, I am so grateful uh, that you don't just come condemn us to slavery, to condemn us to envy, but instead you provide a way out. You don't want us to suffer with joyless life stuck in this comparison trap. But instead, you say, come to me, lay it down. I will take care of it. <laughs> I will provide a way. And so, Father God, we come before you, laying down our crowns and our thrones, abdicating our positions 
giving you our swords, giving you our crowns. We know that the longer we hold on to this thing, the more it's going to destroy us and the more we're never going to get it. And so in humility, we come to you and we say, take this. We long for you to be king of our lives. We submit to you as Lord and you as king. And we are so grateful for the ways that you have laid down your life for us. We're so grateful that you took on what you don't deserve so that we can have what we don't deserve. Glory and your love and your presence in our life. So Father God, would you meet us in this space? Would you make this more than just about a, a action that we've been invited into, but would you make it a physical representation of what is happening in our souls and in our spirits. We pray all this in your name. Amen.